Wow. This is one of the greatest churches ever. Man, I mean, really. Were y'all here this morning? Was not the Holy Spirit in this place? And when y'all broke out in the crowd, I was watching the choir. It's like they took it to another notch, <laughs> you know. And on the way home, I told Brenda, I said, I finally can put it in words. What I love about Talitha Baptist Church is you're Pentecostal without the craziness. <laughs> you, know? you know, you got the freedom to sing and worship and say amen and without all the zany things that go along with it. So uh, God is in this place and what a... A pleasure it is to be able to, to share God's Word with you tonight. And uh, what a great job the pastor did this morning. He has surpassed the old man, I think, uh, in uh, preaching and understanding and all that. But maybe I can give us a few nuggets tonight. I want you to turn in the Scriptures to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we're going to look verses 13 through 17. And I'll get there in a minute, I promise. <laughs> But I just want to give you a little brief report of what Brenda and I have been doing around the world. Many of you have asked about it. You've been praying for us. And when I retired from the local church a year ago, you don't, you don't retire from ministry, okay? You can retire from the local church, but uh, you, you don't turn God's calling off. And as we prayed, you know, what's this going to look like? Our number one ministry in retirement was going to be to our grandkids. I mean, the four grandkids here, the two we have in Texas for right now, I mean, we want our grandkids to know Jesus, we want them to love Jesus, we want them to serve Jesus. And in this crazy world in which they're, they're being raised, we want to be the grandpa and the grandma that tries to give some biblical uh, solutions to all the stuff they're going to be facing. And for our four here, we're thankful not only for Jordan and Meredith, we're thankful for this church. You're investing in them. You're pouring into them spiritually. And I will sing your praises before our Heavenly Father, uh, for, before His throne. The other thing we wanted to do in retirement was to stay uh, invested in mission work. Missions, our heartbeat, it always has been. Even before I was saved, I dreamed of being a missionary. And uh, God just works in that way. And so uh, the church that we're a part of in the Dallas area said, would you continue and be our liaison to our churches in France? So we plan on every year going back to France, to Lyon. And uh, we have a, a mother church there that's been there for a long time. We sent a, a missionary couple over there 15 years ago. And in those 15 years, three new churches have been started. I wish we could take a church, historical church like Talitha, and take it to France. But they don't have such a thing in France. Uh, 200 years ago, when the French Revolution, not only did they behead the king, but many historians said they beheaded God. Because the Catholic priests and clergy were considered the upper echelons of society, uh, the French people said, you're not going to tell us what to do anymore. And they abandoned church, they abandoned God. And even the old guys in France my age, many of them were not even sprinkled into the Catholic church. That's how far they have gone. And the French just live for the day. Uh, many of them just don't even believe in God. And here we are in just a God-forsaken country. And in the last 15 years, God has raised up three Bible-believing churches, uh, two of which have buildings now. 
and God is on the move in southern France, and it is a glory to see, and I always look forward to going over there. And uh, talking to Jordan the other day, maybe doing a little vision trip over there, so you may hear some more about this in the fall. Uh, won't maybe do it as a church, but some individuals, if God just touches your heart going, I, I, I need to see what's going on in France, we might just you know, take you over there and uh, let you to see what it has done. We've been through, preaching through Revelation, John, and one of the disciples of John was a man historical called Polycarp, and one of his was Irenaeus, and Irenaeus is the one who brought the gospel to Lyon, France. And it is a place where the gospel entered into uh, France. It is a place where there was great persecution. We can take you to some of the Roman ruins and the amphitheater where Christians were slaughtered by the Romans. And uh, there's always been a thin, sometimes very thin thread of the gospel in France. But it is there. God has not abandoned the country. And those churches are doing great. And I'll talk a little bit more about France in a bit. We were blessed in retirement to get... Um, hooked up with the International Baptist Convention in Europe. There are 66 churches in Europe uh, that are all English-speaking, if you can imagine that. And uh, uh, the Baptist Convention has been around since right after World War II. Uh, about um, 25%, 30% of these 66 churches are around military installations, so it's heavily military uh, Americans. But uh, the other churches are... Um, there's a whole group of people, English-speaking people from countries around the world who live in Europe, but they want to worship in their native language. And so we have these churches there. But Brenda and I were able to serve at Waypoint Church in Lonstel. Lonstel has the largest American hospital outside of the U.S. When any soldier gets hurt, they're not in Afghanistan anymore, Iraq or wherever. They're taken to Lonstel. And there they are triaged and gotten to a point where they are able to be transported uh, back to the U.S. It's a very critical army hospital there in Lonstel. The village next to it is Ramstein. There's a huge Air Force base there. And so God in his providence placed us at this church in August when all the chaos was going on in Afghanistan. And so we had 50,000 Afghanis stuck all over Ramstein Air Force Base, and it was very, very chaotic. And for those of you who've served the military would understand uh, the soldiers in our church, of which we had regular enlisted people. We also had two generals who attended each week, hungry for God's Word and to give leadership from God's Word. We had pilots, though, who were emptying trash cans and porta-potties. I mean, it was a mess, and everybody was working around the clock, uh, the surgeons at the Army Hospital, uh, those who were bombed at the airport, all those came in through there, and it was a time to minister in the midst of just a dark chaos. But God reigns, does he not? And uh, it was a wonderful thing to see these people stand up for it. While we're there, uh, there's a brand new church, five-year-old church there in Lonstuhl. Uh, I was able to baptize two people. We had 51 people join the church in their first membership class. They'd never done membership classes. And uh, they had um, uh, what we'd call Sunday school classes, life groups. They had three. We, we turned out with six. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time there. And uh, this Tuesday, we're actually going to return. 
And so we will be for six weeks through Easter back at that church. They, their pastor still has not been able to come. And uh, then we'll be in France uh, for another six weeks. And then in June, I'll be back here and maybe be able to give you another report of what God is doing. Let's look at Scripture, though. I want to ask you a simple question this evening. What does faith have to do with our salvation process? Maybe a better question is, why does God use faith as part of the salvation process? Why is trusting in Jesus the means, the vehicle, the instrument for getting us into heaven, for living a purposeful life here in this world? I mean, after all, the gospel message is that God uses faith in response to grace as the only way to justify us. Now, I know we're going to do verse 13. But I want us to start in verse 16. So let's look at verse 16 first of all, and then I'm going to back up. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It's all about faith. This is the, the guarantee to all the descendants of Abraham, not just Jacob and Isaac, but all who have the faith of Abraham that stands apart from the law. Now, the early church was made up of two very different groups. One group had a Jewish background. They understood the Old Testament. They grew up understanding the things of Scripture. The other groups were Gentiles who came in believing Jesus to be the Savior. They didn't really have much knowledge of the laws of Moses or the teaching of the prophets. But both groups believed that Jesus was the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And Paul wanted them to become one in heart and spirit. But the Jewish believers had been raised to trust in the law, and Paul wanted to make perfectly clear that the law without faith through grace would not save them. That Abraham had faith long before the law was even given to Moses. Now the Jews in Paul's day, they keenly remembered the exile of centuries past. In the Old Testament, you'll remember, centuries before the birth of Jesus... Because God's people were disobedient to God, to the law, the Lord allowed foreign powers to sweep in and conquer the Jews, and they were displaced from the Holy Land. And then later, when the kindness of God reappeared, and He allowed the Jews to go back home and rebuild their, their country and their temple, they were not about to forget God's laws again. And so in that 400 period, years period before Jesus was born, you had Jewish people who were very dedicated to the law of God. But they trusted in the law to guarantee them the promises of God. So let's go back to the beginning of our text in verse 13. The Bible says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants... That he would be heir to the world was not through the law, but through righteousness of faith. 
For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Let me give you a quick review of the book of Romans. Paul wanted them to understand the law does not save them. In fact, it's the law that condemns them. Grace is what saves them, and God uses faith through using this vehicle of grace. He justifies us by grace through faith, and that's the kind of faith that Abraham showed. So in Romans chapter 3, he gives arguments for justification by faith. And then here in chapter 4, he elaborates on that argument that Abraham was declared righteous by God long, long before the law was ever given to Moses. And it was also he was justified by his faith about the time that his sinful failings are well known about the time God declares him to be a righteous man. So salvation has nothing to do with the law, but rather faith in accordance with grace. So this is why faith is important. And he mentions three things that I want to share with you about faith. Faith is important, first of all, because the law only brings wrath. The law only brings wrath. That's why we need faith. Now remember, Paul is speaking to a, to a people who, who had enormous respect for the law, but they had become warped in their theology they put their trust in their own ability to keep the law particularly the pharisees if you had asked one of them how is a person made right with god they would have said well by keeping the laws of moses paul says oh no <laughs> you got it all wrong apart from grace through faith the only thing the law does for us is to bring condemnation and wrath. And do we not have people still in this day and age believe that if they're good, <laughs> that they're right with God? Paul says no. Because where there is law, there is law breaking, not law keeping. This is one of the great blessings of parenting children and their behavior. Those of you who have kids... You've got one child, they just have this tendency to rebel in spite of the law, the rules you lay down. Some of you were that kid, right? I mean, the minute they hear there's a rule, there's just something about them, they're tempted to break it. Don't do that, and they can't help it. They, they just want to do that. I had a child like that. <laughs> Working with me in the garage and had a gasoline can with a spout. And I look over and he picks it up and gasoline's pouring into his eyes. And I'm grabbing him, taking him to the emergency room. And I'm just praying, oh God, don't give me a blind kid for the rest of his life. And we strapped him down this deal, and the doctor's kind of chuckling. They're washing it. No damage done, as far as we know, at least to the eyes. And uh, <laughs> on the way home, after I caught my breath, I said, Jordan, why did you do that? <laughs> and he goes, Dad, I just wanted to see what was in there. <laughs> Isn't that what's in it? I just want to see what that's like. <laughs> 
Let me say something great about your pastor, though. We're, our, before we had our third kid, we were on vacation track. You know, you play that alphabet game, you know. Let's find the letter A. Okay, there's the letter D, drugstore. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, and they're on the letter J. And so, I don't know what age Jordan was, but he goes, I see a J! And my oldest son, no, you don't. There's nothing out here, and they're fixing to get in fisticuffs in the back seat. And then he goes, well, you can't see it. It's Jesus in my heart. I said, I either have a lawyer or a preacher in the back seat. And I'm glad the preacher part won out. <laughs> now, the opposite, you have this other child, and they're given a new rule in the, in the household, and they're not just aggressive to break it, but passively, they don't want to follow it either. They'll say, would you please do this? They go, okay, Dad. And then they just ignore it. Well, you didn't do that. Oh, I love you, Dad. <laughs> And we think that's a good kid. But they're just like the one who's, who's the rebel too. Now we're that way with God. He says, don't do that. That's the law. And we do it. Or he says, I want you to do this. And we go, okay, we'll do it. And then we don't do it. But because God is just, condemnation comes. And so Paul says, don't look to the law for your salvation, even if you obey it most of the time. It only brings wrath. That's the purpose of it. So in verse 16, he says, for this reason, because the law brings wrath, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. Second thing about faith is it, it corresponds with grace. The law brings wrath, but faith in accordance with God's grace brings salvation. Faith is that instrument that works with grace, not the law. Of course, what is grace? We know that. Grace is God's favor despite our deserving condemnation. I mean, after all, what, what can any of us match to the grace of God giving Jesus Christ His Son? Nothing. And this is why Paul says, faith is in accordance with the principle of grace. Faith never says, okay, what do I need to do to deserve salvation? Faith doesn't look at ourselves, it looks to God. And what He has provided through the sacrifice of Jesus, it comes with empty hands simply receiving what God has provided by His grace. That's what faith is. God didn't look down one day at a little Pharisee named David Bird and said, you know, there's something pretty good about that kid. He obeys my law most of the time. 
I think he deserves to be saved, so I'm going to send my son to him. No. The Father loved me despite what I was. And he gave his son to all of us. And faith simply looks away from ourselves and our good deeds and looks to God for salvation. You guys like to sing around here, so I threw in a little illustration for you here. Isaac Watts was considered the father of English hymns. He was the son of a deacon in the independent church in England, and he drove his father crazy. Because even as a child, he was always making verses and rhymes. Can you imagine a kid running around just rhyming stuff all the time? Drove his dad crazy, really. But as he grew up, things didn't get better. But in 1692, he was 18 years old. And young, prideful Isaac came home from church ridiculing some of the poor hymns that were sung in church that morning. That was the worst, verses things I ever heard. And I think his father probably had it up here, you know. And he sarcastically said, well, just, you know, you like to make verses, right? Go write some hymns yourself. And he did. <laughs> and later God saved him and got rid of his pride and his arrogance. And uh, he set himself to writing hymns. It was the start of an imminent career. He became a pastor. But because of poor health, he had to give up the pastorate. But for 36 years, he continued writing. And most scholars agree that his highest expression of his faith, our faith, was this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Faith looks outside of itself. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And this is the, the great one. Doesn't it bring tears to your eyes and joy to your heart? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That'd be a present far too small. But it's this love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. It's all grace. But the instrument to receiving it is personal faith. By the way, Isaac Watts wrote a carol. You probably sang at Christmas time too. Joy to the world. Last thing faith does is it opens the door to all people. Faith opens the door to the Gentiles. Verse 16. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants of Abraham. All of them, not just Isaac. Did he not have another child? Not only to those who were given the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all. Faith is important because that's the promise that is guaranteed to all the descendants. The promise of Abraham was for all who are of faith. So this includes not just faithful Jews, faithful Gentiles as well. And we're a part of the promise. The door was open for you and I.
And then love verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. I'm not making you the father of one nation. I'm making you the father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God said to Abraham, I'm making you a father of many nations. So if God is going to give nations to Abraham, then it has to be through some other means than the Jewish law given to one nation. And it's faith. Animal sacrifice wasn't enough, just the foreshadowing. It's going to take a human being to die for the sins of all humans. So God sends forth Jesus into our experience in order to be righteousness in our place and to die in our place. It is the grace of God that we receive by faith. And then Paul says something just extraordinary, and I've been dwelling on this part of the verse for about three months now. I encourage you just think through this verse between now and Easter. I don't know, pick some time out there. God calls into being that which does not exist. Wow. Now let me give you the interpretation, and then let's just marvel at the applications of it. Abraham was a childless man, but his name meant great exalted father. How'd you like to have the end of that ridicule? You're 80, 85 years old. Hey, your name means great exalted father. How many kids do you have? Well, I don't have any. His wife was well past childbearing years, but God brought into being that which did not exist, a child. And God gives Abraham seed, and he opens the womb of Sarah, and a pregnancy happens, and God calls into existence that which does not exist. Because I've called you a father of many nations, I'm going to make it happen. Now the application here is, incredible does God still call into being things that do not exist I say yes a new believer in Jesus we become a brand new creation Paul says that new believer didn't exist a moment ago but now that new person is born again through faith because of the grace of God faith has a role in that he brings life where there is death. Going back to these new churches in France, you know, 15 years ago, these churches did not exist. God has brought them into being. After Easter, Brenda and I will spend six weeks there working in the city of Bron, B-R-O-N. You can pray for that. Highly Muslim city. We're going to live there. We're going to teach English classes. We're going to invite people to get connected to some other believers in that community. And then at the end of May, we're going to invite all of these families that will go out to a 
Christian retreat center to hear the gospel from other believers, many of whom were former Muslim. Brenda's a little more nervous about this than I am. My French is very poor. Hers is non-existence. But can God not bring into existence that which is not? (laughs) Can God not overcome language barriers? Sure he can. He can bring into existence the things that aren't yet there. In addition to the city of Brown, some of the believers have already started prayer walking in another part of the city of the area where no church exists. And may our Lord bring into existence a church there that is not. What doesn't yet exist at Talatha Baptist Church that God might want to bring into existence? I don't have a prophetic word for you. I'm just asking the question. Why might there be something that God is placing on your heart to do? Maybe not the whole church, but you. Can God not bring health where there is illness? Can not God bring hope where there's discouragement? Where there is conflict, can God not bring in peace which does not exist? Perseverance where there is fatigue? I don't know all the ramifications of that verse, but it's a, it's a mighty verse. He brings into existence things that do not exist. Let's bow our heads and then are we going to sing to the Lord afterwards? And then we're going to do that. Heavenly Father, it's good to touch on your word. It's good to be with people who love you. But Lord, if there is anyone here tonight who's been trying to do it on their own good works... Would you help them realize that it's going to be your grace and they just have to have faith in that, not faith in themselves. Would you bring them to the cross? Would you give them salvation because of faith in you and not in themselves? Oh, Lord Jesus, pull from us through your Holy Spirit, your praise, your worship, for you are worthy, Lord, and you are the great I Am. And in Jesus we pray, amen.